Hi, everybody. Cheryl Ackeson here. Welcome to another edition of the Cheryl Ackeson Podcast. Today, another extremely important episode as we continue to unearth, investigate, and uncover the biggest health story and scandal of our time. It involves COVID, COVID vaccines, misconduct, and medicine. We have the outrageous truth about establishment medicine and control of the media narrative as told by Dr. Pierre Corey through the examples of the ivermectin follies and excess deaths after COVID vaccines. Also, how you can get help today. I'm the president and chief medical officer of the Frontline COVID-19 Critical Care Alliance. Uh, Our website is flccc.net. I'm also the medical director of my private practice, which is drprcorey.com, where I treat vaccine injured and uh, long COVID. Before we get into a little more about your background, let's look at some of the newsier items you're involved in. I mean, day to day, there's more information coming out. But you co-authored an opinion editorial that was recently published that had to do with sudden deaths or excess deaths that aren't, can't be attributed simply to COVID-19 alone. Can you give us the upshot of what that article was, was showing and trying to say? Yeah, so the, the, the basis of that article was on some data that we find inarguable. And what I would say is when we stumbled upon that data, a lot of us who've been studying the vaccines, its adverse effects, its effects on mortality, we have many sources of data showing that these vaccines are actually deadly. But what what really changed, I think, the landscape, and this data has been out for a while, is that from our life insurance industry, right? So you're not talking about medical journals, competing studies, conflicting studies, study designs. You're talking about actual actuarial data, which has long histories, patterns, certain rates. And when they see anomalies or abnormalities, it's a major threat to their industry. And the actuaries of the life insurance industry, right? So these are death claims. They started showing data a year ago on massive, unprecedented, historically unprecedented increases in deaths in a particularly interesting sector of society, which is young, which is to say less than 64, but in particular 35 to 44, white collar Americans, the the traditionally healthiest sector of society, were suddenly dying at rates they've never seen. And when they follow these rates over time, the life insurance executives have admitted that a 10% increase year to year is a one in 200 year event. And they were suddenly reporting in the third quarter of 2021, they're reporting increases of 40%, which has never been heard of outside of like wartime uh, or some mass terrorist event. Even terrorist events can't do it because they're local. Um, No one's seen that before. And yet no one's asking the question. So our op-ed really not only focused on the actuarial life insurance data from the US because it's the most damning But all of the data from some of the most highly vaccinated countries in the world, the excess mortalities skyrocketed in temporal association with the vaccine campaigns, and they continue today. They're still very high. They're not as high as they once were, but they're very high compared to historical levels. This is a major epidemiologic and societal catastrophe. No one's talking about it in this current media censorship propaganda, you know, the, the, this, this supporting of this vaccine narrative. I, I got to say it's breaking down because, Cheryl, let me just finish by saying we got this editorial published in the USA Today, which is one of the largest circulation newspapers. Now, although we didn't mention vaccine at the cause, it's very difficult for anyone who's even moderately studied on this topic and what's going on in COVID to read that article and not start thinking what could have caused this at that time. And it was the proliferation of vaccine mandates. We don't talk about it in the op-ed because Cheryl, you know, we would never have gotten that published if we'd called out the vaccines as the cause. So we really published an op-ed asking society the question, why aren't you trying to answer it? Do your own analyses, but come up with an answer why so many young people are dying at such historically unprecedented rates. Well, again, I don't want to get off track, um, but it just reminds me of other things we're learning when people see what's happening in this scenario. We can look at many other things, the explosion in chronic illnesses, the explosion in autism that the government has yet to explain, other than to say it can't be the one thing 
that many studies and scientists point to, which is a vaccine relationship. Yep. So they say it can't be that, but we can't explain what, what it is. And this, this should be international headlines on a daily basis. How many children have autism, have been diagnosed with autism in this country, and yet it's not being discussed in terms of a national health emergency. Neither is what you're talking about and what we're learning about the, the vaccine impact. Can you just in simple terms for people, the unindoctrinated, I put myself in the category of not knowing nearly as much as you do about any of this. Can you explain in really simple terms what an excess death is when there's talk about um, the insurance industry measuring excess deaths in a particular year? Sure. When you when you keep data on uh, how many people die, how many people are born, which are traditional epidemiologic statistics that almost every, I would say every modern society does, um, you have these standard statistics. You know how many people die per year, how many people are born per year, and you know how many people die in different age brackets. And those rates tend to be very stable and predictable over time. They have some seasonal variation, but within a year, you know how many people are supposed to die. So when we start to use the term excess mortality, it means that in a sudden year, you're seeing that many more people are dying than traditionally per average baselines they were supposed to. And so when you see these spikes, historically, it wasn't that difficult to explain, right? So around World War I and World War II, where you saw all these young men disappearing from society, you knew it was wartime mobilization. These are major societal events that you can easily explain why suddenly you were losing all sorts of uh, different age cohorts from society, um, different epidemics in the past. But here, we're going through COVID, and when you look at COVID and the the, fatal, the fatality rates of the variants, they've been getting milder and milder. And even though we had a big excess mortality in 2020, which is clearly explained by COVID, the vaccines weren't around, that went down. But then what you started to see ever since the vaccine campaign is you saw these huge spikes in young people dying. Because remember, the excess mortality in 2020 was largely elderly people. So then why, so we're trying to, you know, get people to ask the question, why in 2021 did we see sudden, unprecedented, never before seen massive rises in the healthiest people in society, which is white collar workers who have group life health insurance, which are generally employed by Fortune 500 companies. So they're well-educated, healthy careers, children, families, good incomes, and they're suddenly dying at rates that we've never seen historically. And so you have to ask yourself, what is the event that triggered that? Now, everyone, we understand the political environment. They're going to try to blame it on COVID. But the temporal associations don't match COVID, especially when the variants, there's much more natural immunity. The variants are getting milder. Yet you're seeing this continued, really increased level of dying amongst working aged Americans. And, you know, when, when you put this out there, you suddenly see everyone attacking you, right? It's drug overdoses, global warming, uh, lockdowns. I'm sorry. None of those things, drug overdoses have, it's not a new thing. The opioid epidemic didn't start two years ago. It started 10 years ago. Plus there's no sudden rise from drug overdoses and lockdowns were two, three years ago. And so there's no credible alternative explanation, especially when you say to yourself, why were white collar corporate employed people dying at such a rate? You have to ask yourself, what was happening in the white collar workplace at that time? So if you look at the third quarter of 2021, which is the data is just absolutely insane, it's overwhelming. You have to ask yourself as a physician, when you take a history and you want to make a diagnosis, it's really almost largely on temporal associations. What happened just before or during? And when you ask yourself that question, what was this major new dynamic in society, event in society that occurred at that time? And the only other massive thing that was occurring was this huge global vaccination campaign. And it led to this unprecedented excess death in young people. In terms that are very simple for people to understand, what is it from what you've learned that could be about the vaccines that would be causing this excess death spike? Well, 
what 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 we know from the data is that in 2020 before the vaccines the excess death was almost largely driven by respiratory disease and in 2021 it was cardiovascular so what is in cardiovascular when you ask how what, what could this be happening we know that the vaccines we know there's mechanisms of the spike protein really attacking the blood vessels as well as the components of the blood where they form clots and so we see a lot of these really odd heart attacks in young people, strokes in young people, brain bleeds in young people, because the vessels are getting attacked and inflamed by the Sprite protein. And again, it's not every vaccinated person. We know that a lot of the um, deaths are concentrated around certain lots. We know that the, we that the the manufacturing. Probably, when we talk about lots, that's a batch of batch. Yes. Is that what we mean? Yep. Help me to be clear, because yes, I do want people to understand that that we know that the adverse events and deaths, especially from the uh, the uh, adverse event reporting database, VAERS, is that they're concentrated around certain batches of vaccines. So some of them were extremely toxic, but there was enough of them to show this societal signal. Many hundreds of millions got vaccines and had no problems, whether they were placebos, whether they were only modestly or mildly effective, that you can argue, but we certainly know that there was a toxicity and lethality to an inordinate number of batches. And it's showing up in societal level epidemiologic data that we've been following for a hundred, you know, decades or hundred over a hundred years. And you're suddenly suddenly seeing these spikes. And and so this the, we know the mechanisms of the spike protein. It's largely attacking linings of blood vessels, it's causing abnormal clotting or protein folding in the blood. And you're getting, basically getting cardiovascular clotting and bleeding disorders from, from damage to blood vessels. And let's just, as an aside, when our regular doctors look at our normal scans, they don't necessarily see it. So people are being no. told by their doctors, you don't have any clots. And from what I've recently learned, you can make this even clearer, they're not going to see this stuff on the normal tools that they're used to using. So, so when a doctor can't find the cause of somebody's mystery illness or attributes it to something that already was there and rules out that there may be these new things in play because they don't see those new things on their normal scans. That's a problem. 100%. So, so let me, uh, I don't want to go into a medical lecture, but let me just separate out two things that you brought up because one, here's how I think of what vaccines do. So one, there's a cohort of people with sudden unexpected deaths or huge events. And I call those post-vaccine complications or deaths. And those are largely cardiovascular strokes, bleeds, whatnot. And you've seen that in younger people, people you'd never think super healthy people. And you've seen all the newspaper reports, the, the videos of people on camera collapsing, uh, newscasters, all of that. Um, and those I think are complications. Those are sudden events. There's a whole other population, which I'm expert at, which my practice sees, it, which is what they have what's called post-vaccine syndrome. And those, like you just mentioned, Cheryl, is, is they have so many myriad symptoms across organ symptoms, largely based around three, which is inordinate fatigue, something called post-exertional malaise, where they get really sick or tired after exerting themselves, and then brain fog. And those are chronic. But what's interesting about those is they can be so sick, so disabled. But like you said, the testing is normal. The CAT scans are normal, the MRIs are normal, the EKGs, the echoes, the blood tests might show a little bit of this or that, but there's nothing that you can really use to quantitatively diagnose. It's a clinical diagnosis, but I know the syndrome because I've seen hundreds of patients and they all present quite similarly with core symptoms. And then they have a whole myriad of other symptoms. And I got to tell you, there's so many out there. Um, but but again, it, it most presents, the chronic stuff mostly presents as a chronic fatigue syndrome. So I, I just kind of want to differentiate the two things that can happen. You can become acutely and oftentimes uh, and, and quite a few times lethally ill, whereas you were asymptomatic before. And then there's this huge other cohort who become chronically ill and disabled. And that's also similarly shown not only in the life insurance industry st statistics, but in disability, because a lot of these life insurance industries, they also do disability insurance. And they saw similar match rises in short and long-term disability. And this is this is coming from some of the executives. So it's it's a really complicated and tragic and and uh, I, I I mean, I can't imagine, I, I don't recall any time, at least in my life, of, of a, such a major public health hazard that no one's talking about. Well, this is one of the biggest stories of our time, and yes. yet not being covered in any 
sense as if it were. And it impacts, I dare say, everybody, even if you're not sick now or even going to become sick later, which I think a lot of people will be. You, you know people who are, and it could be related to this. One more clarification before we branch out. Some of this, even for people who haven't been vaccinated, they may be experiencing similar symptoms because, again, you can clarify this from what I'm learning, what happens after COVID to some people is similar to what happens after COVID vaccine for some people, maybe because in both instances, it involves this problematic spike protein. Is that yes. right? Yes. Yeah, so, so let's talk. So I talked about what I, what I think about after vaccines. After COVID, it's a little bit easier to understand because patients with, basically what happens to patients after COVID is they develop long COVID. They sometimes will have post-COVID complications like a blood clot or something, but it's not that common. It wouldn't, wouldn't reach this level. But the long COVID syndrome presents rather predictably, meaning they get acute COVID, the viral syndrome, the cough, the fever, the sore throat, whatever, the fatigue. And they generally recover to almost baseline or oftentimes baseline. And then sometime in the days to weeks later, they start developing similar symptoms to the vaccine syndrome, which is fatigue, post-exertion malaise, and brain fog. And But generally, it's within days to weeks of recovering from acute COVID. So you know who's long COVID. And they are very similar, nearly identical to vaccine. How do I differentiate them? By taking history, just like I'm telling you, you ask them when their symptoms started, what happened before. And so you know what triggered it. And the main differences between the two, long COVID and vaccine injury, is that long COVID, some of those patients, a small proportion, can have persistent lung disease if they had the lung phase. Vaccine injury generally don't have lung involvement, oddly. And the only other difference between the two cohorts, they present very similarly, the same kind of myriad symptoms, is that on average, the vaccine injured are far sicker. In my practice, and I have probably 70, 30 uh, vaccine injured to long haulers. A year ago, I had 70, 30 the other way. Um, but I would say my vaccine injured are sicker than long haulers. But they really, these this is the chronic syndrome, but in general, they present very similarly with, like I said, fatigue, post-exertion malaise, brain fog, and then lots of neuropathies, what's called dysautonomia, high heart rates, low blood pressures, um, and then and then host of other organ systems. This is really complex, and, and it's um, the level of suffering uh, chronically of these patients in both camps um, is, is really... Um, it, it's been shocking to me, and I'm an ICU doctor. I'm, I'm used to caring for the for, for the acutely and, and acutely dying, and now I'm dealing with the severely chronically ill, and it's uh, it, it's, it's it's a bit overwhelming. The, the suffering of these patients is incredible. And 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 Cheryl, you're letting me talk here. I'm going to say one more thing about it: is you have no idea how many patients in my practice. And again, my practice might have a biased subsection or selection of patients, but how many? so healthy before the vaccine. They, I constantly take these histories. They tell me they were eating right. They were exercising. They were married. They were going to work. They were doing well in their careers. And now, like, many of them can't leave the house from all of their symptoms. It's so sad. Well, it makes me think the problem is much larger than even you're detecting because people who are sicker to begin with may be more likely to accept their lot if they're suffering some sort of vaccine impact, may, may think, well, I was, I was already sick, Oof. or maybe too sick to seek out help from someone who's looking independently at these very unique problems that many doctors aren't looking at. You are, well, you're 100% right. And I'll, I'll tell you a, a recent experience, some recent experiences that have happened to me as I, because I'm, I'm increasingly asked to lecture about what I've learned and my insights and knowledge and expertise on, on vaccine injury and long haul. And when I give these lectures, quite a few people who've attended them or heard them then seek out care because they were like, I, I help them diagnose their own vaccine injury because they, they can suddenly piece it together. Not everyone, but you're right. I think there are many people suffering with symptoms. They don't know what the origin is. They don't know the relation to COVID or the vaccine is, and particularly the vaccine. But but you're right. I, I think it's much bigger than what I'm seeing. Do you have a way to separate out, let's say someone suffers a stroke or a problem and they were going to have that anyway, but they also got the vaccine. Is there a way to tell whether that was a vaccine 
aggravated or induced event or something that was independent no. of that? You, you would never be able to definitively say it is or it isn't. I and, mean, you know, that's life, right? We have black, white, and gray. Um, with medicine, it's particularly, I would say, as you get older, it gets grayer. But I will tell you, a 31-year-old with a stroke, I am sorry. That is the vaccine until proven otherwise. 31-year-olds don't get strokes. Uh, 26-year-olds do not have heart attacks. Like one of my patients was a New York City police officer who was trained to be a fire uh, fireman, which is a higher level of physical fitness. And he was training and running and working. He got the vaccine about six months later, he was running, suddenly started getting chest pain, nauseous, vomiting, went to the hospital and he was found with two huge clots filling his left anterior descending, which is called the widowmaker. It's the main artery feeding the heart. This is a 26 year old, super fit. And when the cardiologist, Cardiologist tried to stent his vessel. The cardiologist said he could not open the vessel fully because it was so firm. He was afraid he was going to rupture the vessel. These are things that are not talked about by intervention cardiologists. They don't usually have trouble opening vessels. We're seeing really strange things. And so this is a 26-year-old man with a massive heart attack. That does not happen. We're only seeing these crazy events in younger and younger people, people, you know, young kids dying, ball fields dying, athletes dying. I mean, this isn't even close, Cheryl. I mean, this is a catastrophe. And I feel like I'm like a lone man shouting from a rooftop. Like, why isn't anyone listening? Well, that has something to do with the managed information landscape that I've spent a lot of time writing about. It's probably never been as damaging as it is now. And I hope people are finding ways to pierce through this and get good information and get past the manipulation of medical information in particular that's out there. I'd like people to know before we go into another topic related, a little more about you. Reading from your biography, it says you're the former chief of the critical care service and medical director of the Trauma and Life Support Center at the University of Wisconsin, considered one of the world pioneers in use of ultrasound by physicians in diagnosis and treatment of critically ill patients. Can you take it from there and just hit a couple of other highlights so people understand you didn't just pop up on the scene during COVID? Yeah, no, no. So I'm, I'm, um, I'm a lung specialist and ICU specialist. And I had, I had a, a lovely career in academia. Um, I'm most proud of my, uh, my achievements as an educator. I, was, I, I trained physicians, medical students, residents, fellows, especially in my specialty. And I was well known in my specialty, as you mentioned, as a pioneer in a, in a subfield, which was teaching doctors how to use ultrasound to make life-saving diagnosis, so, you know, see which part of the heart was blown, the right ventricle, left ventricle, we could diagnose clots, we could diagnose lungs full of water, and you could do this instantly. And I spent a decade building courses, training doctors, I wrote a, a textbook uh, on the topic, which is a best-selling textbook. It's in its second edition, translated into seven languages. And I think I, I made a real big impact in my specialty. I was also an expert on another field in my specialty and was well-known for that. And, and then COVID came and me and my colleagues who were equally accomplished in medicine, my, my, my co-founder of my organization, Paul Merrick, is the most published practicing intensivist in the history of our specialty. So we were, we were very credible folks when we started and when we started to advance and recommend our guidance for treatment, um, it's odd that credibility, Cheryl, seems to have vanished. Suddenly we were fringe, quack, right wing, weird. You know, they, they, they just demolished our credibility. I, I was shocked. The stuff that I have to read about me is absolutely disgusting. And uh, it's, you know, it's part of my, my learning in COVID, how, how this works. Well, welcome to the club. Yep. You know, when, when you're off the narrative, the propagandist, environment is so powerful that they've understood ways to immediately undercut the credibility of the people who are standing to bring truth to light, the uncomfortable truths that impact these big money interests. And it's been pretty effective. I think a lot of people see through it now, but sure, surely a lot of people don't. You can tell by the reaction and how effective it sometimes is. So along those lines, an interesting thing happened during COVID. A lot of doctors and scientists who had been considered anything but fringe were very mainstream and accomplished in their fields. If they took this position, and many of them did, on COVID that was against the public narrative, that public narrative that turned out to be wrong, they were treated and still are treated kind of split off as if they 
are in a different category of position. That's why I wanted people to know a little about your background. You aren't someone that just emerged suddenly during COVID saying things that were off the narrative about COVID and got attention. You were one of those mainstream, credible, accomplished physicians, and you still are. But yeah. it's, people have worked very hard to, um, you know, to take people like you and controversialize you. And those of you who have stuck with it, because the pressure that comes with that kind of scrutiny and that kind of smearing is people who haven't been subject to it will probably, I hope they never know what that's like. But those of you who stand up to it, kudos to you, because it's something that's impossible for many people to withstand. Thank you yeah. for doing that. And after a short break, I want to talk about the war on ivermectin. So we'll be back in just a moment. In this age of a highly controlled media landscape, it's never been more important to fight the heavy hand of censorship and support truly independent journalism. Go to CherylAckison.com and click the store tab for a great way to do that. There are all kinds of cool products. A lot of them make great gifts that feature catchphrases like, I tested positive for critical thinking and do your own research, make up your own mind, think for yourself. Proceeds support independent journalism causes like the Cheryl Ackeson Ion Awards for off-narrative, accurate reporting. Go to CherylAckeson.com and click the store tab. Back now with Dr. Pierre Corey, and I would like to talk about, I think this is your latest book, and it's a bestseller on the bestseller list, The War on Ivermectin. Gosh, there's been news on ivermectin in just the past couple of days. Can you tell us about your book, sort of what the talking points are and what we've learned since the publication of your book? Yeah, yeah. So um, what what the book really recounts is what I learned about not only ivermectin, but the world. Um, you know, I became an early expert on the therapeutic efficacy of ivermectin. And I tried, myself and my organization tried to disseminate that to the public and um, what happened to us and what happened to the science around ivermectin was, um, I, I think it should enter the historical record. I think people 10, 20 years from now, if they want to know what happened in COVID, uh, I, I believe this book should enter the historical record. Because what I try to describe in the book, Cheryl, is that, you know, I'm going to tell you really briefly what happened. So after we discovered, because we saw so much data around ivermectin showing massive drops in um, uh, mortality, uh, hospitalization rates, time to clinical recovery, time to viral clearance, we started to put out that data. And we thought this data and what we were guiding would be well received and systematically deployed. And, you know, you may know I gave testimony for Senator Ron Johnson and, and, um, the testimony went viral and it kind of went around the world. And so suddenly ivermectin was on everyone's uh, minds and it was being discussed and as a potential treatment. And I saw that everything started to go sideways. Suddenly all the data that we brought forth was being attacked and dismissed and distorted. And then you saw all of these newspaper articles and then attacks on us. My paper which I did this comprehensive review, it passed peer review, three rounds of peer review by four different high level scientists and was accepted for publication was suddenly retracted. And so like, I just didn't understand what was going on. Like, I, I, I gotta tell you, Cheryl, the, the guy I was before COVID, like I actually believe that the high impact medical journals published only the best science and scientists. I believe that the agencies were about public health. Heck, when I started COVID, I actually thought Fauci was a sympathetic fellow in a tough spot with a lot of critics doing the best he could. That's literally what I thought when this started. And what I come to learn after my ivermectin expertise is that I just saw lies, distortions, and attacks, and I didn't know where it was coming from. And what changed my life was three months after my testimony, I got an email from um, a professor named William B. Grant, and he's one of the most published researchers on vitamin D in the world. And he wrote me a two-line email, and he said, Dear Dr. Corey, what they're doing to ivermectin, they're, they've been doing to vitamin D for decades. And he included a link to an article called The Disinformation Playbook. And I didn't know what this was about, and I clicked on the link. And I saw this article, and it's written by the Union for Concerned Scientists. And it literally laid out all of the tactics that industries deploy 
when science emerges that's inconvenient to their interest, and I know you're an expert at this, Cheryl, so I don't need to explain this to you, but when I learned about what disinformation was and who pioneered it, which is literally the tobacco industry, which practiced it for 50 years, and when I learned about all the tactics and I saw the examples they gave, my head exploded because it was everything that I was living around ivermectin. I saw every tactic they did was being deployed against ivermectin. And on that day, I said, you know, the world needs to know about this, what they do and how they do it so we can protect ourselves from these lies. And I committed myself to writing that book. And, and so the book is part biography, it traces my career, especially my career in COVID, because I was involved in a lot of things besides ivermectin. Um, but then I use ivermectin almost as a case study or example of for how disinformation is practiced. And they did this on a global scale in countries across the world using consolidated corporate media and, and captured medical journals. And, and I basically walk people through every single step of how they created the narrative that it's a horse dewormer and it's ineffective. And, um, and that's the truth. And I want people to read the truth. And I think Again, although the book is about ivermectin, it's really about the decades-long war on repurposed off-patent drugs. It's the biggest threat to pharma, and especially in COVID, when they had this $100 billion market of vaccines, Paxlovid, Molnupiravir, monoclonal antibodies, remdesivir. It, it suddenly opened up overnight where they could make tens, if not probably over a couple of years, $100 billion. And little ivermectin stood in its way. And let me ask, let me add one thing. It's not just ivermectin. I wrote the book, The War on Ivermectin. One of my colleagues could have written the book, The War on Hydroxychloroquine, because the war on hydroxychloroquine was literally identical. Same tactics, same results. And um, that's why I think it's an important lesson that we learned from this, this period. And, and I think we need to know it. You know, If we're ever going to believe that we're not going to repeat history, um, we have to learn so we don't repeat it. And I want people to know what happened here around that drug, because it would have changed the pandemic. It would have literally ended the pandemic. I'd like to get your comment on the thought that a lot of people have a hump to get over to join us on this journey. And I used to be one of those people that I wouldn't have even questioned a vaccine. My child's fully vaccinated. Yep. I didn't understand the, the biologic reasons why it could cause adverse events or brain damage. Like that sounded crazy to me because I didn't know I didn't know enough. And I try to get myself to that space where that I used to be where it sounded crazy to me that the government would be covering up something like that or something like this or that top public health officials or that our journals or doctors. I think a lot of people still have a hard time making the leap into the water to believe that the people responsible for our health and safety would do things so nefarious that they can't be explained in any altruistic way. What's your comment on the thought that I still run into? I just stop talking when people ask me questions and I see them sort of flatline in their interest because I've gone to a place with something very factual and documentable that they don't want to go to in their they mind. Can't. They can't. And so the way I kind of interpret your question is like, and this is how I've thought about it, um, is so many people still retain an implicit faith and trust in the institution institutions in society, whether it be the media, the journals, the agencies, and its officials, right? There's an implicit trust that this is one of the building blocks and pillars of our society. And of course, it's just and correct, imperfect. No one's expecting perfection, but they generally think that these institutions are working for certain aims that we all agree with. And I'm going to go back to my book. One of the things I trace is how I used to believe in that belief system, and how I was transformed over three, three, three years. And I traced the events, which literally opened my eyes and made me ask questions. Why are they doing this? Why is this happening this way? And at each turn, I found the most terrible answers, which is that there were policies being championed and promoted throughout society that were totally devoid of the science, the true science from a mass, from a totality of the evidence. You could see that every single policy was completely devoid of that. And once you see that, you see that science is not guiding policy. Then you have to yourself, what is guiding policy? And the answers are not good. It's not science. And, and once you realize that the, you can see the, all the institutions of society and medicine are working to something that's not pragmatic, pragmatic, 
not logical, not based on data, and not really directed because it's so devoid from the science. It doesn't have a true public health benefit or or goal. And once you realize that, then you become estranged because that's where I am. So you were saying like you talk to some people, they kind of hear you, feel you a little bit, but then you can very quickly exceed what they're capable of comprehending. I, I've I've gone through those stages. When I told you about like what happened before I read that article, I was just confused. I didn't know what was going on. I knew that they retracted my paper for unprecedented reasons. We'd never seen this kind of behavior. I knew that the media was attacking me with no basis. I just didn't understand why it was happening. And once you realize that those institutions and agencies are completely captured and controlled by forces that are not, don't have our best interests at heart, you're in a very different place in the world. And I know you're there. I'm sure a lot of your viewers are, you know, but it took me a while. I got to tell you, I started from, Cheryl, I make the joke that prior to COVID, I read the New York Times every day. I believed everything it said. I thought it was the paper of record. If you wanted to know what's going on, you read the New York Times. That's what I thought. Well, this whole saga with me, I won't give much detail. Interestingly, before I really covered much COVID related, other than literally, I factually tracked every patient in the US when it was still able to be tracked. There were you know, nine here and three there. And I was putting together what little we knew about their age, comorbidities and so on, just a factual record because I had nothing else I knew to cover at the time. And the New York Times published an article smearing me. It had factual inaccuracies and fabrications in it to try to portray me as being a COVID denier when actually I had been publishing about COVID, simply the stats on COVID, same thing New York Times had done. And to get them to correct it, I had to hire a lawyer. They acknowledged it was wrong and fabricated, but wouldn't correct it. Oh. And I had to pay money out of pocket, hire a lawyer, got the corrections probably nobody saw. But my point is, you know, the, the New York Times and the media, it's so disappointing for me being in the media that there was a time not all that long ago we were never maybe fully unbiased on every topic, but we could be counted on to do oversight. We expected that government agencies might try to be captured or the medical establishment might be captured, but there would be somebody out there kind of looking out for the people, and that was us. When yep. we stopped doing that in the media, it became, and I, I argue we did that in a big way in 2015 surrounding Donald Trump because the media got on board to suspend its normal ethics and practices to cover unfairly sure. cover a president that they viewed as uniquely dangerous. And I think for many, many reasons that have to, that's an aside, but can you tell us some, some of what happened to you specifically when you got smeared and attacked, you lost, I assume, positions and jobs and um, yeah. come after you on many different levels. Yeah. I mean, so I lost three jobs. Well, the first, uh, I will say this, I resigned from one, Mutually departed from another and was fired from the third. Uh, the, the first one was when I left the University of Wisconsin. I was early in COVID. I was a clinical chief and I resigned over moral and ethical objection to what they were doing. They were advocating for what was called supportive care only. Um, they would not let us treat with corticosteroids or blood thinners. And I was the chief. And I was getting this from above. And I said, listen, if this is what you're going to do, I refuse to doctor here. And I refuse Why were to they doing that? Because... Um, it's a long answer. Let me give you a short one. Um, my take is that what's happened to medicine over the last 10, 20 years, which I think really does explain what happened in COVID, is there's this obsession with evidence-based medicine, which I think actually has corrupt uh, control over. But there's a belief in every modern doctor that you should not use any medicine or do any treatment unless there's a large double-blind randomized control trial to support it. And so if you don't know what to do, the answer is do nothing at all because you might harm them, which is insane because the Hippocratic Oath does not say do nothing. It just says, above all, focus on doing no harm, but you have to help patients. It's been perverted and distorted in modern medicine. This is prior to COVID. And when COVID broke out, many leaders across the country said, do not try anything because you don't know that it works. It could hurt them. And so they were just saying fluids, oxygen, Tylenol for fevers, whatever, and I saw patients dying at rates I've never seen before. I say patients landing on ventilators who were not improving. You could tell they needed certain treatments. And so I objected to that and I resigned. Okay, and then I let me, let me, that's yeah. really interesting. And that corresponds to a chapter in the book I'm writing now because it has to do with the folly of the brainwashed 
I believe, brainwashed belief in the minds of many doctors as they parrot, where's the peer-reviewed public study, published study for X, when in fact, most great innovations or adverse events have come up initially, not through a peer-reviewed published study, but through kind of what I would call grassroots, anecdotes, observational, experimentation, observation. And I argue in my book, I will argue, that that's a propaganda term that, again, has been installed or instilled into doctors so that new treatments or alternate treatments can be controlled and not tried or so that adverse events are not considered for a long period of time until it's far too late. And that's, just, that's all a manipulation. 100%. You're describing modern medicine. I didn't know it was manipulation. I thought it was intellectual idiocy. I just didn't like where it went because I, I was an educator. And partly why I, I won so many awards as an educator is because I was constantly pushing back over this thinking. And, and what's worse than what you said, because you get it totally right, which is this discounting and dismissal of what they call anecdotal or observational data. You can profound therapeutics that are really potent. You don't need a randomized control trial for If you're a decent doctor who has, you know, strong powers of pattern recognition, you can tell what's working. I'm sorry. That's just the truth. But in modern medicine, they're literally taught dismiss all anecdotal observational data, no matter how polished, only wait for the huge, heavily funded, double blind, multi-center randomized control trials. And now here's the real kicker, which I hope is in your chapter. But the fact that modern medicine puts such weight and value, in fact, almost inordinate value on these kind of trials, belies the fact that these trials all fail at objectivity. And the reason why is the bias of the funders outweigh any objectivity of the design. These randomized control trials are nonsense. The ones that appear in the top medical journals in the world, do you know how much millions go into those trials? They generally have predetermined results. That's how bad medicine is. If we're only going to listen to trials that cost millions of dollars, who's paying the millions? And tell me how they are somehow separated from the investigators. They are not. The, those that conduct the trials are literally working for the funders or future funding. It, science is really, really broken. And I didn't know how badly broken it was three years ago. Yep, agreed. And you know, there's a control that didn't exist probably 25 years ago with only the good stuff. There's some exceptions to this, but this is a general rule now. Only the good stuff about a medicine being studied will be published because now the companies control the data. So if something bad comes up and if the researchers even wanted to publish it at their own peril, you know, for getting future funding from drug companies, they can't because the contracts now state that the pharmaceutical company or the funder owns the rights to do all of that. So all the stuff you hear, when I do hear something negative about a drug, I pay attention. It either is because it's a something that's coming out to, to pump up another drug, like something bad about one drug will help another drug and that's why it's out. Or, or, it or, or Cheryl, or it's, it's what they call a limited hangout. Meaning like, you know what a limit, like, so I almost think of myocarditis as the limited hangout. They, it seemed like the authorities were allowing us to discuss myocarditis, but not the myriad of the things the vaccines are doing, let alone the deaths, right? So they'll let you talk about one thing, but the other point you're making, which is so true, is that, you know, pharmaceutical industry, those companies, their primary responsibility is to the shareholder. It's not to the patient. And when you look at their behaviors, everything they do makes sense. So the fact that they systematically have ways of distorting and suppressing adverse event data, and there's been numerous cases over decades where they've been fined billions for doing this, this is what they do, right? If, if you have a product, of course you want to suppress data that's going to hurt your product, and you want to promote data that supports your product. The pharmaceutical industry is no different than a toy company, uh, you know, a car company. I mean, they, they do the same thing. It's not about public health. So my last two topics I'd like to touch upon with you are, there are people out there that would like to discuss these things with a doctor, particularly if they're sick or someone in their family sick and they think they could be helped by some of the new research. But I think in most cases, even if they have a good, well-meaning doctor, the doctors aren't going to have the time or the desire or the knowledge to go down this road. So what is a patient or someone who's listening to us now, what is your advice or thoughts as to some meaningful things they can do to get help? 
Oh boy, that's a difficult one. I mean, I have, I, I believe I'm part of a trusted network of colleagues. Many of us do telehealth that I think uh, are deeply studied, very open and aware of what's going on and can give credible, objective guidance, really based on real data. Um, the problem I have, and I'm sorry to be too cynical, but it, I kind of differentiate myself from system docs. I've left the system. I'm in private practice now. I don't have a boss. I don't work for a, an agency or an academic medical center or a healthcare system. And the system docs have, have shown themselves to be particularly uncurious about COVID. They seem to just take their direction from above. They are the least studied on adverse effects of vaccines. They're largely curated from that data because they only feast on high impact journals. So when you say like what my advice is, I'm sorry my advice is negative, but I, I, I think you have to start with, I wouldn't, the average system doc will not serve you well. They do not have the information required to give you good advice. Um, that's number one. I would stay away from the system because that system is captured. And then who would you seek out I, I don't know. My, my sense is the most objective are those in private practice who are free to still speak freely, even though we're still not, even in private practice. If you're publicly stating something that goes against the narrative, they come after you. I just lost my board certifications. I have 11 complaints against me at my state medical board, none from a patient, all because I'm a supposed misinformationist. So it, it, it's really hard to find the doctors who uh, understand what's going on and are still objective and, and are still... I don't know, curious and studied. Um, I, I don't have a frontline. Can they go to frontline COVID-19 critical care? I'm trying to remember the full name of your- that, that would, That's a good answer. So we do have a directory there. And I would say the, the folks on our directory there are generally with us and understanding and they believe in our science and our guidance. And I think that would be definitely the start is flccc.net. And we have- um, uh, we do have directors of doctors who treat acute COVID and long COVID. And I think that's a start because those those doctors are treating that way, especially using repurposed drugs. That's also a marker that they understand a lot of the other aspects of COVID that have been fraudulent. So you said flccc.net. Yep. And then there's also my practice where I see the the injured and long haulers as well as acute uh, COVID. That's drpiercorey.com. That's great. And then my last thought, I guess, that I would like to get your comment on. You mentioned earlier something about if we don't do certain things, we're destined to repeat the same mistakes. I'm not encouraged by what I've seen, even as definitive research and understanding has come out about some of these topics. It's no longer credibly deniable, um, certain things that the government and public health officials were wrong when it comes to COVID and COVID vaccines. But they have yet to do a correction, a mea culpa, an apology. There's nobody been held responsible, even in cases where the um, information wasn't just wrong. It was provable disinformation. Um, I've instances I've reported on those from CDC and others. So if to this day nothing's been done, nobody's been held responsible, what's to make us think this, they wouldn't do the same thing again? And, and we learned the government has a way, even if there are free thinking and good doctors and people out there, the government has all kinds of ways to control private businesses and industries through these intertwined connections that they have to force policies. What are your thoughts on would anything be different next time? Yeah. And yeah, I mean, one of my thoughts on what you brought up is that you're right. I mean, one of my thoughts is that Unfortunately, we have to understand this is not a data argument because we know what the data shows. The data is so overwhelming for certain truths. And, you know, for instance, that the vaccines are not safe. They are not effective. Ivermectin is highly effective. So is hydroxychloroquine. Those are the truths. All the data supports that. We have so much data to support every of those points, but the data is not winning people over. People are not learning from the data. So how do we prevent this from happening again? So if it's not a data argument, then what is it? Unfortunately, and this is where I hate it because I'm a researcher, I'm a scientist, I'm not a politician, but it is a belief system. It's an ideology. It seems like people are much more uh, defined by their ideology and political aff affiliations. And a lot of the propaganda puts people in those camps. So like, for instance, if you take like ivermectin, for example, Republicans were largely in favor of ivermectin, where Democrats absolutely thought it was a horse dewormer. I've never heard of science becoming politics. And one of the great one of the great memes I saw is, "Who likes penicillin better, Democrats or Republicans?" 
right? I mean, how, right. how is the efficacy of penicillin a political topic? Whereas now, every aspect of COVID seems to be political. And so you have half the country who believes one thing. And, and, and although the data literally shows one side, you can't seem to get the data to be understood by people. And and so I, I don't know how to do that in this modern controlled corporate media sphere where literally most people are hearing one side of the story and one narrative. They're being censored and propagandized as to the real data. And so I, I don't know. I, I have this hippy dippy hope that, you know, the truth will win out somehow. We keep pushing. I, I don't I don't know how it's how it's going to. I do know this, though, is that sometimes I think that to try to win where the truth is known by all and we understand that this was a fraud and these were the real things that happened. I don't know that that's going to happen. So I take solace in that. And I don't want to sound too overly sort of moral, but like every single person that we can reach who can come to understand will be one more person protected. It's almost like our guidance on treatment with ivermectin. We didn't win the war. We didn't get to majority, but we really reached millions of people around the world who understood the efficacy. Many, many hundreds of thousands of doctors around the world knew how to treat COVID. Not all of them, but like, I don't know. I, I, I don't know. I just try to take solace in the fact that, you know, every person we can reach to try to make them understand what is honest and true, um, I think will help protect themselves. Well, thank you so much for your part in doing it because it's no easy task. And I appreciate you for spending the time with me today. And you too, Cheryl. You know, I'm a big fan and uh, a big admirer of you. And I appreciate your work. And uh, let's just keep going. Eyeshadow has come a long way since you swiped on one color at a time or practically had to take a master class in cosmetics to get the shading right. Hi, I'm Star, owner of the Lemonade Mermaid. And I've designed an exclusive shade shifting multichrome pigment for eyes that's like no other you'll ever see. Just swipe it on your eyelids and the magic happens. Depending on the angle and light, it shifts between hues of golden pink or green and pink and even purple and gold. The shading is done for you. Just $25 for a jar that will last you months. My website is store.lemonademermaid.life. And listeners of this podcast can get 20% off these incredible pigments by using the checkout code PODCAST. I hope to see you at store.lemonademermaid.life today. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. And if you did, you'll leave a great review and share it with your friends. And check out my other podcast, Full Measure After Hours, for more original reporting and interviews on off-narrative topics that powerful interests often try to censor. It's never been more important to support independent reporting. You can do that by going to the CherylAckison.com website, click the store tab and browse our great products. The most popular new slogan that I have on products there is, I need to find some new conspiracy theories. All the old ones came true. Proceeds support causes like the Cheryl Ackeson Ion Awards, giving cash awards recognizing and encouraging independent off-narrative reporting by college students and professionals. Do your own research, make up your own mind, think for yourself.